Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. Today we have a special treat in that we have Dr. John Pauline sharing with us from the book of Revelation. And as we put the theme together for camp meeting here in Calamesa, I thought what a great opportunity we would have if Dr. Pauline would be available to share with us a vision of worship from Revelation. And so Dr. Pauline, who serves as chair of the Department of Religion um, at, the, at Loma Linda University, and before that served for over 20 years as the chair of New Testament at Andrews University Theological Seminary, has authored over 20 books, uh, over 100 uh, scholarly papers. You can see them on the Hope Channel. But mostly, he's one of our church family. And so, and he spells his name right, J-O-N. <laughs> so I knew you were chosen. <laughs> but he is, I like to introduce him as Brother John, because he's our brother here in the family of the Calamisa Church. So John, please bless us today. It was the evening of September 20, 2001, an event that uh, a nation, a stunned nation struggling with what to do was looking forward to because on that evening, the President of the United States was going to address a joint session of Congress and was going to share the response that was being planned for the events of September 11. And uh, you probably remember that. Uh, most of you probably took uh, an attempt to hear that speech. And my wife and I didn't have uh, television reception, but we found a friend and we went over there and, uh, and, and watched uh, that particular event. And that was where we were introduced to this concept of Al-Qaeda. Never heard of that before. Uh, what it was, where it came from, Afghanistan, etc. And uh, the president was talking about sitting down with all of his advisors and struggling with how to respond. What are we going to do? And uh, probably for me and for you, the highlight of that speech uh, was when he said, you know, a couple days ago I got a phone call from Dr. Bob Soderblom at Calamesa Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he made a suggestion that we're taking very seriously, and that was that the youth orchestra of Calamesa and the vocal band be sent to Afghanistan and do a tour over there praising the Lord and uh, worshiping God. And that maybe this ought to be our response to September 11. While I know that uh, Dr. Bob's on a first-name basis with every celebrity and thought leader in the world, 
I cannot fully verify where that phone call actually took place, but I suspect it will come out in George W.'s autobiography, which is due in a couple months. So all that stuff is going to come out. You'll be watching for that. Anyway, you might ask the question, what does that have to do with worship in the book of Revelation? And I would say on the one hand, absolutely nothing. But on the other hand, absolutely everything, as I think you'll see uh, as we go through. What I want to propose to you is a Bible study. And when I was invited to speak on this topic, which I'd never spoken on before, I thought, well, how am I going to go about it? And the obvious way for somebody who did a biblical scholar seemed to be read the book of Revelation through and find every text that talks about worship. And so I started by discovering what the key words for worship are and, uh, and where you find them in the book and actually came up with about six passages. And uh, for sake of time, we're not going to look at all six of those, but we will look at three of them. Just want you to know there are another group in chapter 7, in chapter 15, in chapter 19. You'll find three other worship texts uh, that we won't uh, look at this morning. But they all give pretty much the same information. So uh, let me share them with you. It'll be like a Bible study uh, this morning, and then at the close we'll draw some conclusions. So let's start with Revelation 4 and verses 9 to 11. It says, Whenever the living creatures express glory and honor and thankfulness to the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one sitting on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever and throw their crowns before the throne. Now you see a couple words highlighted there that we just read sort of in a purple color. The word fall down is one of the key words for worship in the Greek language. It means basically to fall on your face, and it's not kind of like uh, NFL football where you get thrown on your face, but it's, just, it's an intentional bowing down, completely prostrate on the ground before God. Uh, in many ways, uh, Muslims still continue to pray in the way that uh, was very common in ancient times. People would fall down on their face. And the other word that's translated worship also means essentially the same thing, to fall flat on your face uh, before someone else that uh, you wish to honor. So these are two key words. If you want to know about worship, don't just pick any text at random that seems to say what you want it to say, as some of our uh, skit people did. <laughs> but rather to, uh, to look at the words that actually address the subject. So here we have worship taking place, and you'll notice that there's a reason for worship in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor power because you created all things, and on account of your will they came into existence and were created. So you see, the reason that worship is taking place here is because God created the worshipers. When we realize that we are created by God, we want to respond to the one who is greater than we are, for whom uh, our existence is possible. So we see that worship here, uh, first of all, is taking place in the presence of God because he created. Chapter 5. Verses 8 to 10. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down 
before the Lamb, each of them having a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here you have that word, fall down again, word for worship. Why are they worshiping? They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book and open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And, another reason, you have made them to our God a kingdom and priests, and they will reign on the earth. So you see, the reason for worship here is first of all the cross of Jesus Christ, and then second of all, what God has done in our lives. People at the time Revelation was written they suffered persecution. They were rejected by neighbors and friends. It was really tough following God. But the book of Revelation offered to them, when you follow Jesus Christ, he will make you kings and priests. In the ancient world, the highest status anyone could have would be to be a king in the political realm. But in the religious realm, the highest status that you could possibly have is to be a priest. So the book of Revelation invites us to worship God because of what he has done for us. One more text in Revelation, chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. The 24 elders who are sitting on the thrones before God fell upon their faces and worshiped. There's the two words again. They fell on their faces and worshiped. So this is a worship text again. Why are they worshiping? It says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken hold of your great power and begun to reign. God is taking charge. God is setting right the things that were wrong. God is undoing the oppressor and the abuser. God is in charge. And for that reason, he is to be worshiped. So there's two points that stand out. As you take a look at those three texts, all three of them basically make the same two points. And we can summarize that. First of all, it's all about God. It's all about God. You saw many options in the skit. It's all about the music. And yes, music, I think, is very important to worship. And one of the things I love about contemporary music... I love many of the great hymns as well, but what I love about the contemporary music is it's all about God. They're prayers. The songs written today are prayers to God. It is about worship. Trust and obey, very important concept. Good to sing about, but it's not about God. It's about us. You see the difference there? Worship is about God. Worship is not instruction. It's not a class. Worship is not scolding people for what they're doing or what they're not doing. It's not shaming people for what they may have done during the week. It's not about us. It's about God. When I was in academy, I was part of a singing group too. They didn't send us to Afghanistan, but uh, they did send us around the eastern part of the United States and I remember one Sabbath we ended up in a church that was in the middle of evangelistic meetings. And so the evangelist was preaching the sermon that Sabbath. And he was a real little guy. 
It was almost comical because he could barely get his nose over the pulpit so you could actually see his eyes. He was that small. And he was not a happy camper that day because it seems that the people were not taking the meeting seriously. They weren't coming themselves. Uh, the attendance was very sparse. And, and he was just hammering at them, why are you not coming to the meetings? What is the problem? Don't you realize how important this God wants you to be there? And, and, and it went for a while, and I don't remember everything he said. But there's one part I would never forget. Because this little guy just raised himself up on his tiptoes, looked over the pulpit, just barely pointed to somebody right in the front row and said, You! How come you're not coming to the meetings? Whew! I thought... <laughs> I have a pretty good idea why he's not coming to the meetings. <laughs> Didn't want to hear too much more of that. You see, sometimes we get confused. We call it a worship service, and it's really about us. It's really about what we need to do or what we should be doing or what we're not doing. And the book of Revelation tells us, really, it's all about God. And one more thing. It's all about recounting what God has done. Not about what we have done, but what God has done. In every one of those texts in Revelation, it had something to say about what God had done. It was a recital of God's actions. First of all, he created all things. When you realize that God has created you and everything there is, you realize you owe everything to him. It talked about the cross, the lamb, that was slain, and there on the cross, God establishes our value. After all, if the one who made the universe would have died for you, how much are you worth? And what does it matter what anybody else thinks if God sent Jesus to die for you? And then he talked about our status as kings and priests. We worship God because of what he has done for us personally. And finally, we praise him because the day is coming when he's going to set things right and put everything together that's broken. The book of Revelation tells us that worship is, first of all, it's about God. And second of all, the process of worship is reciting, recounting, rehearsing what God has done. The author of Revelation didn't invent that idea. It's actually grounded in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there are hundreds of texts in the Old Testament of worship. And in every case, these texts are a recital of what God has done. The great mighty acts of God in the Old Testament were creation, the exodus, the flood, and the return from exile to Babylon. But of these, the greatest act of God was the exodus. That's the backstory to every act of worship throughout the Old Testament. And still for the Jews today, worship is talking about the Exodus, telling what God has done there. Psalm 111 verse 4 uh, gives us some insight into this. We find there, He, God, has caused His wonders to be, what? Remembered. In other words, the actions of God here on this earth are not done for God's entertainment. They are done that we might remember them. That's a basic principle. But it has larger implications. 
In Psalm 66, verses 3 through 6, it tells us, Say to God, here's, here's a prescription for worship. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what God has done. How awesome his works in man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. What's that last part in yellow? What's that telling us about? This turning the sea into dry land, passing through the waters on foot. It's the Exodus story. It's a great story about how God delivered his people from Egypt and how God dealt with their enemies at that time. Whenever the Israelites worshipped God, they remembered what God had done. They remembered the Exodus and how God there had delivered them. All right. Doesn't want to go. Let's see. There. Okay. So God had delivered them at the time of the Exodus. Their worship centered in what God had, gone, had done. As I said, I could give you a hundred texts, but I'm just going to give you uh, one more that illustrates this, and that is Psalm 78 and verses 5 to 8. Here it gives us the principle. He decreed statutes for Jacob, established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them even the children yet to be born, they in turn would tell their children. In other words, the stories of what God had done are to be cycled and recycled from generation to generation. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds. You see, if we have trouble trusting in God, it's because we've forgotten what God has done for us. What he's done for us in the Exodus, what he's done for us in the cross, what he's done for us in our daily lives. If we forget what God has done, then when trouble comes, we have difficulty trusting him. They would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The men of Ephraim though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done. Now, the Ephraimites, that happened to be the most powerful division of Israel's army. The Ephraimites were the most numerous. They were particularly skillful in the use of weapons. And in a particular crisis... They turned away. They abandoned the armies of the Lord because they had forgotten what God had done. When faced with a situation bigger than they could handle, instead of relying on God, they ran for cover. Notice what they forgot, verse 12. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, the region of Tsoan. 
He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and the light of fire all night. He split the rocks in the desert, gave them water as abundant as the seas. What's that all about, these last four verses? It's about the Exodus. Whenever they worshipped God in Old Testament times, they remembered the Exodus, the foundation story by which God had made them a people. In fact, this chapter goes on another 70 verses, just telling all kinds of details of the Exodus. Worship is about God and particularly about what God has done. But that sounds like it could get tedious, but it does not need to. Because here's the interesting thing. The essence of worship in Old Testament was rehearsing what God had done, but it wasn't just empty. Here's the key. When people recite what God has done, it isn't just empty, but the power of the original act is unleashed. In other words, if there's a sense that God's power isn't present in our lives, the way to get that power is not begging for it. The way to get that power is to tell what God has done in the past. And when you do that, the power of God is unleashed in the presence how do you unleash that power? Beautiful story in Second Chronicles. You see, the children of Judah faced their own September 11. It's told in Second Chronicles 20. The story is told that three nations, uh, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, came against Judah. They were all about equal in size. That meant that the Israelites were outnumbered three to one. They did not have a chance. No allies were coming for them. What would you do under those circumstances? You would probably decide to change the odds in any way that you could. Set up obstacles. Uh, dry up the wells that would be outside the cities. Uh, make sure the water supply inside the cities is strong. You could do a whole bunch of stuff. But Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, doesn't do any of that. He calls a worship service in the temple. And that story is told in Second Chronicles 20. When Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord God, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? What does Jehoshaphat do? Well, if I had been in his place, if I had been facing all these armies coming, I think my prayer would have been something like this. Oh, God, help us. Oh. We're in trouble. They're going to kill us. Oh, we can't do anything. We're helpless. Do something. Do something. You ever pray like that? I have. That's not how Jehoshaphat prayed. Instead, Jehoshaphat began to recite the history of how God had brought them to that land, how God had watched over their history, how God had cared for them and protected them in the past. Notice as he continues, they have lived in it have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, 
If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. You see, Israel had a covenant with God. And that covenant is whenever the nation is in trouble, instead of getting ready and talking about it and trying to figure out what to do, they all went to the temple and had a worship service and reminded themselves of what God had done in their past. Verse 10, But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came up from Egypt. You see what he's doing? He's reminding God of the history. He's reminding how God was in control of that history. He says, God, you wouldn't let us conquer these nations. You wouldn't let us drive them out. You said, leave them there. Because they're cousins. They're descendants of Lot and, and uh, other uh, uh, sons of Abraham. So they were sort of half cousins. So God said, leave them alone. He says, so they turned away from them, did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. You see the humility of Jehoshaphat? He didn't think the army or any preparation that he could make would make a difference in this setting. They looked totally to God. They recounted what God had done in the past. They trusted that the God who divided the sea and walked them through on dry land could do something about this invasion that they were experiencing. Jumping ahead to verse 20 tells us the conclusion of the story. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army. Now you notice it didn't say, you guys sing here while we go out and fight. What did he say? You guys take the lead. You go out at the head of the army. You confront the enemy with your song. How would you like to do that? How would you like it if President Bush had sent Calamace the choir to Afghanistan instead of smart bombs? Would the world be different today? Would we have survived? Jehoshaphat sends the choir out in front of the army and notice what they were singing they were singing a song it wasn't trust and obey <laughs> although they might have been tempted to sing that instead they sang the song give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever it was all about God and about what God had done and can do as they began to sing and praise the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. You see, what basically happened is God confused their uniforms. 
And they began to think that the Israelites were upon them, and they began to attack each other, thinking that they were fighting the enemy. And when the Israelites got to the battlefield, there was no one left. You see, the power of the Exodus was not just a matter of history. But when Jehoshaphat recounted the story of the Exodus, when the glory went to God, the power of the Exodus was unleashed again to deliver them, this time from their neighbors, as he had delivered them from Egypt. Daniel 9 is another story like this. We won't read it together. But basically, Daniel realized they'd come to the end of 70 years. He'd been 70 years a captive in Babylon. And he remembered God's promise that you'd be in Babylon 70 years and then I'll bring you back. But nothing was happening. So what does Daniel do? He prays. What does he pray? Oh, God, you know, why aren't you, telling, you know, fulfilling your promise? We're still here. You know, what's going on? What's wrong? Help us. No. If you go back and read Daniel 9, he recounts the history of the Exodus. And it unleashes the power of the Exodus. The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and tells him, God has heard your prayer and God has a plan. And within a few short months, Cyrus sent the Israelites back home to rebuild Jerusalem. No wonder the devil was trying to destroy Daniel. Remember the lion's den? Daniel's power was rehearsing the mighty acts of God. And because he was rehearsing, the power of God was being unleashed in the present for the people of God. What's true of the Old Testament is true of the New Testament as well. The greatest act of God in the Old Testament was the Exodus. What is the greatest act of God in the New Testament? The secret of Christian power is telling and retelling what Christ has done. Telling the story of the cross because it is there at the cross that God did his greatest and mightiest act for us. That is the place where our exodus took place, where we passed through the waters, came out on the other side, symbolized by baptism. That's why Ellen White says every sermon ought to be centered on the cross. Take the cross, lift it up higher and higher because when people realize the fullness of the cross the power of his resurrection will be unleashed in the reality of our lives today to simply talk about the cross is not empty the power of God is there whenever the name the blood the cross of Jesus Christ is named that's why witness is so important because when you witness for your faith what are you doing? You're telling what God has done for you. And when you tell what God has done for you, the power of the resurrection comes into that conversation. The Holy Spirit presses the statements in the ears of the listener, but there's two people listening. Not only are your words being heard by another, but they're being heard by you, and the power of the resurrection is unleashed in your life. When we share our faith, the power of the resurrection is brought to bear. You know, I think sometimes the greatest barrier to God's power in our lives is selfishness, self-centeredness. That's why worship is so important. 
because worship turns our eyes away from ourselves toward others. When we're buried in ourselves, when we're moaning about our problems, when we're moaning about everything that's happened to us and been done to us, the power of God is blocked. But when we break out from that and we direct our attention toward God, His power becomes unleashed in our lives, becomes available. I'll never forget a September 11 that my wife and I experienced. We were in the neighborhood of Washington, D.C. We were attending some meetings near the General Conference. We were staying in a motel. We put the kids to bed. We went to bed ourselves. We had three small children at the time. And at 12.30 that night, the phone rang. And I picked up the throne and said, what is this about? And I recognized the voice at the other end. She said, I'm in the room just three doors down from you. She says, my roommate just locked herself in the bathroom. She has razor blades. And she's speaking in languages that she's never known before. Can you help us? <coughs> and I looked at my wife and I said, well... Ministries 24-7, I guess we better go. And we checked and made sure the kids were asleep. Everything was quiet there. And we slipped out and went three doors down and found out that she had raised the alarm. And there were about six of us standing there in a motel room. And in the bathroom, you could hear this disembodied voice shrieking all kinds of things incantations in behalf of Satan in Latin and Greek and in Hebrew. I happened to know the languages and understood what she was saying. And I looked at the other pastor who was in the room and his face was blank and frightened. I looked at the others around me and their faces were blank and awestruck. And I realized... There was nobody who could do this for me. But I had to somehow confront this thing that I did not understand what was happening. So I asked the others, I says, okay, here's what I need you to do. Just gather around the bed and pray like you've never prayed before. And remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that he is the one who died for you. You're not praying in your strength. You're praying in the name, the power, the blood of Jesus and then I went over to that bathroom door and began engaging this person who after some time opened the door. She was lying on her head with her legs up in the air against the wall. I've never seen any such a position ever. She cycled between three things. One of them was attacks against me. She attacked everything that I was, everything I believed, Satan knows who you are. But then she would shift, and in this boastful voice about Satan is greater than God and, and start talking in tongues and so on, and then she would shift again, and she would shift into a mode of abject helplessness. I'm nothing. I, why are you even bothering spending time with me? I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. I'm, I'm sold to Satan. I, that nobody can help me. Why are you even here? Why are you even bothering and it went around that cycle several times. 
And it was almost amusing at times because every so often she would go into one of these loud attacking modes. Eventually she got straightened out and, and came out of the bathroom. We sat next to each other on the floor. And whenever she would start screaming and screeching and so on, I could hear the prayers in the background kind of, you know, it was kind of like this because everybody was, was just seized by this. It was the most unbelievable thing. And, and this is the point, the reason I'm telling this story. <clears throat> At that moment, it didn't matter that I had a Ph.D. At that moment, it didn't matter <clears throat> that I knew the Greek and the Hebrew. At that moment, it didn't matter that I was an ordained pastor and had been for some 16 years. None of that prepared me for that moment. All I know is that the prayers of my wife and the others that were praying there, it felt like I was lifted up on a cloud. I felt like, like uh, clean before God, right with God. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And I simply began to talk about what God had done. I said, in the name, the power, the blood of Jesus Christ, what you're saying is a lie. Satan is a liar. Jesus Christ is the one who can redeem you, and he's going to redeem you. And there were times when he or she, whatever you want to call it, wanted to frighten me and attacked me physically, dug her fingernails into my arm. And lifted up by the prayers, I realized that if God is with me, she can't hurt me. And it dug so far and never went too far. It was the most strange and amazing situation I'd ever experienced. The point is this. The only power you have that can counter the action of Satan at a time like that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. In his name in his blood, in his sacrifice for us. Satan hates that kind of a language. Over time, we came to realize that she had a number of talismans, you know, earrings, various things that were uh, dedicated to Satan, and so we collected all those, and the pastor and I went out to the creek that was not far away and tossed all those things into the creek. A police car went by at that moment, 2.30 in the morning, and I thought, you know, if they stop and ask us what we're doing, <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to say. But we went back, and I had an idea. And I said to my wife, would you go to the car and get my Greek Bible? If she's going to use these languages for Satan, let's fight fire with fire. And I began to read the Greek New Testament in the Greek. Now, some of you have a medical background. I'm a pretty scientific person myself, and you're probably wondering, what form of mental illness is this? And I believe that there was an element of that there. I went to see the, the chief chaplain at the hospital the next day, and we began to arrange follow-up for, for the young woman. But when I read the New Testament in the Greek, she translated as I read, and I read some of these passages from Revelation. She translated from Greek to English. Nobody at the seminary can do that, and she had no training. So I realized we were dealing with something bigger than just mental illness. There was a power at work here. And it was on that day that I discovered that recounting the acts of God has a power in the present. Little by little, 
those symptoms, that cycling, that cycling began to calm down. And about 3.30 in the morning, she looked at me and she said, I'm tired. Can I go to bed now? And so everybody helped her get into bed and we all went quietly back to our rooms and said, are we going to sleep now or not? <laughs> and blessedly, God gave us sleep that night. In the morning, we went, met her again. Said, how are you doing? She says, I'm in love with Jesus. You see, this world is a tough place. We all have September 11th from one time to another. But the secret of power in the Christian faith is not in what we know, not in what we do. I did nothing that night except simply recite what I had learned about the gospel. Just talk about Jesus. Just talk about what God had done while others were praying for us and praying through these very same things. It was not about us. It was about a situation in which God could act and do the power that only God can do. Worship. It's all about God. It's all about what God has done. But worship is also about what he can do and will do for us today. God bless you. Lord, the Ephraimites were distracted. They forgot. And because they forgot, they were unable to deal with the challenges of their lives. Lord, you know things are ten times more distracting today than they were then. Our jobs, our families, our household issues, caring for the children, internet, the phone, email, television, traffic, so many challenges today, so many distractions. Lord, thank you that these texts call us back to you. Call us to keep our focus on the one thing that truly matters. May we, Lord, from this day forward, from today is the first day of the rest of our lives, may we keep you in focus. May it be all about you and not about us. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.